0: If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. If you don't have a Bible, there's one that's located right in front of you somewhere. Um, This is our first Sunday. If you came for the first time today in a a new series uh, in this book, in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, If you go near the end of the Bible, you'll see Revelation is the very end. You scoot back a few books and you'll find 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Kind of small books, so you might take a second to find those. We're going to be reading the first 10 verses today. It's our normal practice to go through books of the Bible uh, passage by passage, and the reason we do that is because uh, it it forces us to look at exactly how God's Word unfolds as it was given, and it also uh, forces us to look at things that sometimes we might want to avoid, and when we do that, we actually discover God's Word is really good and challenging and beautiful in ways that maybe we hadn't thought otherwise why are we going into this book thessalonians why did i choose this for our next study i have to admit that it's part of my personality uh, to to pick things that don't get picked very often Uh, thinking back to the old uh, kickball on the school ground days for me uh, if i was team captain and we had that awful horrible practice of a like, choosing team members picking you know you know how this works you choose one and then the last people that are not very good uh, get get chosen last and I always hated that when I was the team captain I'd always choose people that I thought would be cho- chosen last you know so that I would avoid the embarrassment uh, for their sake so that's part of my personality and I gotta say that Thessalonians is kinda the the kid that doesn't get picked very often um, You know, when you're standing next to the book of Ephesians or Romans, those are the ones that tend to be team captains and get a lot of play time from churches. Thessalonians sometimes kind of slips through the cracks. So that's part of my personality. I feel like, hey, I want to be the one to talk about Thessalonians. The reason why, in some ways, is because there's some things that are about this book that are hard to approach. Um, There are some passages in these two books, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, that Paul writes that have a lot of people scratching their heads. Two passages in particular, one in 1 Thessalonians, one in 2 Thessalonians, are probably two of the most disputed or debated passages in all of the Scripture. And both of them have to do with the coming of the Lord, the the future, um, what is sometimes we call eschatology, that is the study of last things. And for that reason, there's a lot of head scratching. We don't really know what those passages mean. We're going to talk about them as we come to them. But I think for that reason, it's kind of a mysterious book for a lot of people. It deals a lot with the coming of Jesus and with God's judgment and, and the end of, of time. And that, for many, is kind of like, a, I'm not sure if I want to talk about that. Now, there are some churches you can go to that talk about that all the time, right? That's, like, that's the thing that they talk about. If you've been here for a little while, you probably will notice that that's not our vibe. It doesn't mean that we avoid it, though. It means that we talk about it when it comes up in the scriptures and we are going to talk about those things but maybe there's a little bit of embarrassment sometimes when we talk about things like the coming of the Lord and we wonder do I believe this and is this how is this going to work and is this just something that people you know who are crazy believe in we're going to talk about all of those things I'm just mentioning a few things why first Thessalonians and second Thessalonians sometimes get avoided even though there's some great one-liners in the books uh, types of verses that you might see printed on pillows at Hobby Lobby. Um, we get a few of those verses in, but as a whole, it's not something that we talk about a lot. But I love this book, and I want us to go deeper into it and actually experience what Paul gives us in this, this tiny church in Greece. Um, has an amazing story of transformation, and that's what I want us to start with today, which is how the Thessalonians were transformed by the Gospel. And this book is not just written to them, it's written to us. How are we transformed by the Gospel ordinarily? That's going to be the question in the back of my mind as we go forward today. Let's read the first 10 verses together. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come this is the word of the Lord so a number of years ago uh, I was just working at home at our kitchen table and one of my sons ran into the house very excited uh, and he comes up and he says, Dad, you have to, you have to come see this, come with me. Uh, and so I'm like reluctant, I'm like, okay, you know, can it wait? He's like, no, it can't wait, you know, it's like, you gotta come now. And so I come outside with him, he wouldn't tell me what it was, he takes me over to this little dirt section uh, beside our uh, a- air conditioning unit outside. There's a little patch of dirt beside it that a uh, kid a long time ago had pulled all the grass out, and so it's just a little patchy spot there. And he shows me the weeds that are sprouting there. These little semi tall weeds are on the ground. And he says, Dad, can you believe it? And I'm thinking, Weeds in my yard? Yes, I I can believe that. Uh, I remember him saying, Can you believe it? And he said, They're growing there all by themselves. In other words, we didn't plant these. Uh, And they're growing. Isn't that amazing? What I was seeing in that moment was weeds are ordinary. Weeds happen, they're common. They grow in places on the ground after the monsoon here, as we're experiencing right now. But what he was seeing is that weeds are extraordinary, they're not ordinary which is also true because when, it, when you think about it on a base level, how can such things happen? How can things grow from the ground? I mean, that's, that's a deep subject. It's amazing when you think about it. It's actually unbelievable, and everything actually is unbelievable when you slow down long enough to look at it and think about it. But it's also true that it's common, that that is the way things are. Oh, I say that because as we come to 1 Thessalonians today, and Paul talks about this gospel that has come to them, you need to see the extraordinary power of the gospel, and you need to see the ordinary means by which it comes. This is both true of the gospel. It is extraordinary. It comes with power. This morning, the gospel is being preached. The gospel is true. It has extraordinary power, and it actually enables extraordinary change in God's people. It's also ordinary. It's also the way that God has made it to work from the very beginning. It's also very commonplace because this is God's world, and He made a world where the gospel is true and rings out just like He made a world where weeds are amazing and yet common. This power is being noticed by the Thessalonians as they are changed by the gospel. Look at verse 2 with me as he describes the very first thing that he's giving thanks for. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. He mentions three virtues here that are mentioned throughout the Scriptures. Faith, hope, and love. Paul later will say in another book, the greatest of these is love. This is the trinity of Christian virtue. This is what happens when lives are transformed by the Gospel. There's an increase of faith. There's an increase of hope. And there's an increase of love. It's mentioned in Romans in the book of Colossians and Galatians and 1 Peter and Hebrews and the book of Revelation. These three virtues are what happens when the gospel transforms people. Now, what's amazing is that he gives this tribute to them and he's barely spent any time with them. As we're going to see, he was in Thessalonians for just a little over three weeks. And yet, the seeds of the gospel that were planted there are now resulting in so much fruit. It is extraordinary. But what Paul did there was the same thing he did in every city. It was very ordinary. Here's what I want us to see today. The gospel often works in a very ordinary pattern, but results in extraordinary transformation over time. The gospel often works in a very ordinary pattern. We're going to talk about the pattern of what Paul did in Thessalonica and what it resulted in and what it can still and does still result in for those who believe in this gospel. It is ordinary and extraordinary. What is the pattern? This is Paul's pattern in a lot of places, but this is what he did with the Thessalonians. First, the word comes. Secondly, The Holy Spirit gives power. Thirdly, the life is transformed. That's the ordinary pattern. The Word comes first. Look at verse 5 with me. He says, Because our Gospel came to you not only in Word. Now just pause there for a second. He's going to go on to say it came in power. That's what happened. But first, it came in Word. The Word came in. First, Paul spoke the good news of Jesus Christ to the church in Thessalonica, or the budding church, the group of Christians that came to faith. Now, I want to back up for a second and say, how did this word even get to Thessalonica? This this outpost in Greece, where it's a Roman province, how did it happen? And I'm going to actually have you do the work with me today. I don't very rarely do this, but I want you to grab the Bible that's in front of you, or a Bible that you came with, and turn with me to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. It's on page 870 in the Pew Bible. If you're using that black Bible in front of you, turn with me. This is what I do every week, but you're going to do it with me this time, if you will. Page 870, Acts chapter 16. Part of why I want to do this is just to show you that these are not mysterious things hidden. These are things that you can discover for yourself. The book of Acts tells the story of Paul's journeys and the budding early church. And it tells us when he got to Thessalonica. So this is important backstory for even verse 1, why Paul would be writing to the Thessalonian church. Look at verse 6 of chapter 16. And when they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Paul's doing his thing in Galatia. He's preaching the gospel there. He receives a vision from a Macedonian man, this this vision, and he says, God wants us to go to Macedonia, which is present-day Greece. He wants us to go west. Paul wanted to go to Asia. He wanted to go east, further in. He was already in Asia. That's where Galatia is. He was in that, that that landmass right there before Asia gets really big. And he was hanging out there and he wanted to go into Asia. But Paul said, I mean, God said to him, turn and go west to Macedonia for reasons we don't know why. Um, and you know, I think if you wanted to think about what if Paul had gone to Asia first, uh, that would be a useful and kind of cool work of speculative fiction. If you wrote that book, I would read it, right? Because what happens here is Paul goes west And this creates what becomes the Western church, which has a huge influence in history. And and of course, the Western church right now where we live, we're considered part of the West, is in decline. And in Asia, the, the gospel is sprouting bigger and bigger. And in the South, the global South in Africa, this is not the way that it was at first, It went westward first, and so Paul goes into Macedonia. He crosses the sea from Asia into what is now Europe. Now, Paul became the first missionary to Europe, and it probably didn't feel all that significant to him because this is the Roman Empire, and he's in one province of the Roman Empire, and he moves over westward towards another province. But in God's plan, this is where the birth of the Western church begins in Macedonia. Still with me in Acts chapter 16. Go down to verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. So he goes through a couple of towns and he ends up in Philippi. Now the rest of chapter 16 is Paul at Philippi. Now he's in Europe. Now he's in Macedonia. He's following the call of God to where he has been called westward into this new region. And he spent some time in Philippi. The rest of chapter 16 is the conversion of Lydia. She is the seller of purple dyes and she comes to faith. She and her household are baptized. Paul then is thrown into prison. The Philippian jailer Is there? He converts through an amazing circumstance. He and his household are baptized. It's and Paul is then able to move on. So we're just following Paul across a map here. Turn to uh, chapter 17 of Acts, verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Paul now arrives a couple more towns through, and he arrives in Thessalonica in Greece. And this is where the story of Thessalonians happens. Look at verse 2, and we'll read a few verses here. And Paul went in, as was his custom on the three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, "'This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ,' have come here also. And Jason had received them, and they were all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. This is what happens in Thessalonica. Paul makes it to this city. He preaches three Sundays, three Sabbaths, right? Three Saturdays, three Saturdays in a row. The Jews don't like him being there. They stir up a crowd and they push them out of town. But while he's there, over those three Sundays, many devout Greeks, those are Gentiles, come to faith. And not a few of the leading women of the city, the influencers, and a few Jewish people as well. They get run out of town. Paul goes first. He leaves And he goes by himself through Athens and to Corinth. I'm skipping over some things, but this is what happens next. Silas and Timothy follow him and eventually end up in Corinth as well. Turning one more page, this is the last one I'll make you do the homework for. Chapter 18, verse 5, we pick up where? When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. They join up Paul in Corinth. Now it is from Corinth that Paul writes the letter of Thessalonians. And if you go back to the book of Thessalonians now, in the first verse, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, they're hanging out in Corinth and they're writing this letter. Silvanus is Silas, by the way. That's just a different name or a Latinized version of his name. Paul, Silas, and Timothy write from Corinth. This is what has happened. The word came to the people of Thessalonica from Paul. Three weeks of preaching. And already he hears from Timothy. When Timothy joins him, and this is how he writes, I hear about this work of your faith and the labor of your love and their steadfast hope in Jesus. This is what the gospel has done. This word that went to them. And what was the content of that word? What did he do for those three weeks when he preached? Well, it said it right there in Acts chapter 17. The three weeks had three points. I don't know if he did one point every Sunday like it was, you know, like a modern day preaching, but I can imagine that he did. All right, so what he did is explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Three main ideas. Three Sundays. The historical Jesus, number one, is the Christ. This one who was crucified was actually the Messiah. That's the name. Messiah is the Old Testament of uh, This promised one is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. Number two, he had to die. He had to die. It was necessary for him to suffer on our behalf. Number three, he was raised from the dead. He had to be raised from the dead. Three main ideas, and that was enough. The gospel took root in Thessalonica and spread such that Just a little while later, just a few cities later, Paul is hearing about how amazing their testimony is and how changed the city is. It came from the Word. Jesus is the Christ. He had to die and was raised from the dead. That Word went out and bore much fruit. That's ordinary. That's what happens. But it's also extraordinary for the lives of the Thessalonians who were changed by it. Paul is quick to say, though, that it didn't just come in word. Look at verse 5 again. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. The second way that the gospel comes ordinarily is that the Holy Spirit gives it power. It is not the Word alone that transforms us. Otherwise, everyone who reads their Bible every day would never be a jerk. But we've got some counterexamples of that, perhaps, that you may have seen. This doesn't make sense because... It makes perfect sense because the enemy himself, we're told in Scripture, knows the Word better than anyone. He knows the Word. He uses the Word to tempt Jesus. It's not the Word themselves alone that brings this sense of transformation. It is the Word with conviction, power, and the Holy Spirit. Power. Something happens when God's Word is read, when it's talked about, when it's preached, when it is discovered in your prayer life. God's Word has a power To read it not just for the words, but to read it for its power. It also has conviction. It's not just that the word is read, but the word has something to do with my life. When the word is read, it should come naturally to us to be drawn to its conviction. That means when we hear it, we immediately measure it against our own hearts. Do I believe this? Does it make sense to me? Am I living this way? This is what happens. A conviction comes over us. How should I change? It shouldn't just exist whether it's true or not true. It should exist of, if it is true, what does that mean for me? Power. Conviction. And all of this is possible because of the Holy Spirit. Other passages in Scripture show us that the, the Holy Spirit is the engine for these other two things. The Holy Spirit brings power and brings conviction of sin. And so... When we are to be transformed, it's not just that we hear the word, but that we ask for the Holy Spirit to bring its power into our lives. This is ordinarily how the gospel transformation works. The word comes, the Holy Spirit gives its power, third and finally, the life is transformed. Paul spends the rest of this section talking about the transformation of the Thessalonians. And it is amazing. Four things he points out. He says, first, this transformation has re- resulted in rejoicing in affliction. Look at verse 6 with me. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You see, this This word came to them, and it was such good news that it transformed their way of understanding their current suffering and the suffering that followed, because as we saw, the Jews didn't really want this message to be out there, and so they chased Paul. Actually, They actually chased Paul to another city. If you had read on in Acts chapter uh, 17, you'll see they hated him so much they followed him to the next city so that they could tell them to make sure that they attacked them as well. This is the environment that the Thessalonians are in. But the report, the transformed life that's getting back to Paul's ears is that they are joyous in this affliction. Rejoicing in affliction. Number two, a reputation for faith. Look at verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols. Sorry, I'm looking at the wrong verse here. Verse 7. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. He says... You proved to be an example. You became an example. The word model there. Now the scriptures are filled with this kind of language of imitation of models. But this is the only place in scripture where an entire church is commended as a model. The Thessalonians had such a transformed life that Paul is finding himself meeting people that already know about them. And he's the one who started the church and was only there for three weeks. But he hears the reputation wherever he goes. He says, "Your, your reputation sounded forth. Literally, it rang out. Again, the only time in Scripture we get this description. But in other Greek literature, it is the sound of a clap of thunder or the fanfare of trumpets. Your life it's just being proclaimed everywhere, Thessalonians. I'm so thankful to God for His work in you because you have a reputation for change. Rejoicing in affliction. Reputation for faith. Third, repentance. Verse 9, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Repentance. We often talk about repentance. What does it mean to repent? The word means to turn away from something. And we often say there's two turns in repentance. There's turning away from sin and there's turning towards God. And that is exactly what Paul says here. This is a proof text for what repentance is. Two turns. He says you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. This is Greece. This is the place of the Pantheon. This is, you know, now it's a Roman province, but there's Roman gods mixed in. This is an area where polytheism is the norm. It's just in the air to to worship many gods. And so it's so radical. The Thessalonians would, would... Have this view of God, not where they took Jesus Christ and what Paul had said and put it on a shelf next to the other gods, but they would actually take those shelves down and turn to the one true and living God. They would have a strong temptation to just put Jesus on the shelf with everything else, but they were gripped by the gospel. Little that they understood it with the words that Paul said, they changed. Because the one true and living God had gripped them. And they knew that it required more than just worshiping Christ. It required worshiping Him alone. Rejoicing in affliction. Reputation for faith. Repentance. Fourth and finally, readiness. A readiness in verse 10. And to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. He says, one of the things that we've noticed about you Thessalonians is that you are ready for Christ. You're waiting for Him in faith. You're believing the right things about the future. Now, they've got some wrong views of the future. This is just Paul's glowing at the beginning, okay? We're going to talk about how they were wrong. They thought Christ was coming back immediately. There's going to be some problems. We'll get there. But he commends them first for their readiness. sees that they've already assumed the resurrection and the ascension they believe it to wait for this son from heaven whom he raised from the dead God raised Jesus from the dead and then apparently he's not here anymore he has been ascended but they believe that Christ will come to deliver them from God's wrath We're going to talk about this more as we go along. But the wrath here is not an outburst of God's emotion. He doesn't just get fed up. This is the natural consequence of a holy God, a God who has been patient, the scripture says, not wanting any to perish. This God will come, though, in wrath. The Thessalonians are eager because they know they've been delivered from the wrath to come. This is what's happened from three weeks of preaching. The word went forth. The Spirit brought power, conviction. And the lives of the Thessalonians was changed. It was extraordinary. But it's also ordinary. It's actually what Paul did in every city that he went. Now, the fruit, the results, are not something that he controlled. The fact that it was an outburst in Thessalonica was not something He predicted. It's what the Spirit did. We don't have control over the amount of fruit, but the process is the same. It's the ordinary way that God changes people. And we need to see that first, it didn't happen with the Thessalonians. It happened with God. As I said, the first thing that came was the Word, but that's actually not true. Look at verse 4. The very first thing that happened is that God set his love on them. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Before even the word came, God had set his love on the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians had nothing to do with God. They were fine in their polytheism. They were fine in being a province of Rome. They were fine being a port city where all kinds of amazing wealth was generated. Still today, there are ports there where the Thessalonians would have had shipments come in. And this was a successful place. They had no need of God from their own perspective. Paul gave the vision of the Macedonian man to God gave it to Paul, who then responded and brought this word to them. This has everything to do with what God does first. He loved these Thessalonians and he chose them in himself. He set his love on them. Then he gave them the word. Then he gave them the Holy Spirit to respond. And then he brought fruit that resulted in a huge reputation for faithfulness. And all of it started because of God's love for them. This is the way that God transforms us. And it's still at work today. Because this is an ordinary Sunday. It's so ordinary. If you come back here next week, we're going to be doing the same types of things. We're going to be centered on the Word. Reading it, hearing it, preaching it, singing it. We're going to be praying for the Holy Spirit to bring a conviction of power. And change. And we're gonna be watching our lives for the transformation that should, is promised through the gospel. This is ordinary. It's just what happens. But it's also extraordinary. Because God Himself is still communicating through His Spirit and through His Word. He is still speaking to us and He is still changing lives. He is still bringing repentance and reputations and a readiness for Jesus into our lives. And so what we do and what we're called to do is to submit to his ordinary means. If we receive the word and if we pray in the Holy Spirit and if we watch for transformation, we will see an increase How much is up to the Lord, but we will see an increase of faith, hope, and love. The virtues of the Christian life are given to us, not because we respond to God, but because he loves us first, sets his love on us, then gives us his word, then he himself powers it, and then he changes us. How do we begin to do this? I believe that Paul gives us a wonderful model. The Thessalonians are a wonderful model. It's probably the closest thing to a formula you'll ever get from me. I don't really believe in formulas. But Paul here is extremely helpful. God can use anything He wants. God can use a car wreck. God can use losing someone in your life. God can use anything that He wants to bring about change. But this is what He ordinarily does. He brings the Word. He transforms it by His power, and then He changes our lives. And so when we think about what we are called to do, first and foremost, expose your heart to the Word. Expose your heart to the Word. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. There is an extreme poverty in the statement, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words sometimes probably falsely attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. We know what was meant by that, that the word can't just be mental. It has, to be, it has to have action, but it's overstated. Preach the gospel using words because the word is the gospel. What it is in its very definition, it is a proclamation. We proclaim today, good news, Jesus is the Christ. It was necessary that he die and that he be raised from the dead. That is the gospel, and it is a proclamation that you believe or don't believe. This is where transformation begins in real time. It begins before the foundation of the world with the Lord setting His love on us, but in real time it begins with us hearing the Word. Is your heart exposed to the Word? Is there opportunities for it to be exposed more? Do you come on Sunday Sunday? ready to receive the Word? Do you have a life with God on the day-to-day where His Word is transforming you? When we prioritize it, this is the way that God begins transformation in our lives. It is through His Word, but it's not through His Word alone. It is possible to know the Scriptures and not be transformed. We must then also pray for the Holy Spirit to bring conviction and power. Pray for the Holy Spirit to bring conviction and power. Step two. We haven't just done our duty if we've read, but when we read, we see things like this Be holy as I am holy. You can't just read that. There has to be the power and the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but I'm not holy. What would it look like to be holy, to cry out to God for that conviction? Not just to hear, do not be anxious for anything. Not just to hear, be angry, but do not sin. But, but how is my anxiety, how is my anger pushing me away from people and from Christ? Ask the Holy Spirit to bring His power to that thing that the Word has exposed. Number three, watch for transformation. Paul is able to see and be encouraged by the Thessalonians. He sees their progress, and we need to be able to recognize spiritual progress in our own lives. This is hard for us to see. It's hard for us to do this. Sometimes, maybe often, we feel like, I'm just in the same place that I was five years ago. That's not true if you've been exposing your heart to the Word and praying for the power of the Holy Spirit. God works in us. Sometimes we don't see it. We need help seeing it. What helps with this? Journaling helps with this. When you look back and you see an old entry and you're like, I can't believe I was so worried about that. I would not approach that like I did then. Having community helps. When other people say, I really see how kind you've become. I see that you did that. It's evidence. It's evidence. Of the fruit of God's work in your life. You have been transformed. We need each other. We need these stones of remembrance so that we can watch for the transformation. I don't know how the Thessalonians saw themselves, but Paul saw them as changed. And he had been there and been with them. Transformation is something that is best watched rather than achieved in some kind of way. But we're called here to be faithful to the inputs. That is the word and praying in the Holy Spirit for conviction. And it is very, very, very ordinary. But God uses the ordinary as he's about to do when we come to the table, this bread and wine before us to change us in extraordinary ways. That is, in fact, what he does throughout the scriptures. He takes what is true in all of its glory and extraordinariness And he says, here, come eat this meal with me. Come and and have faith in me. Go to church and be around other people. It's simple. It's ordinary. But over time, God uses it to bring about extraordinary transformation. Let's pray. We pray to you, Holy Spirit that you would bring power and conviction to each of our hearts as we've heard the word, these 10 verses in this new book that we're studying, you alone bring transformation. That you and your eternal heart have said, we are the beloved and set your love on us and now drawn us to yourself and given us your word, and given us the Holy Spirit. You have given us everything we need, in other words, for life and godliness. Would you help us to be faithful to the ordinary inputs? That we would be in your word, exposing our hearts to it. That we would be delighted with it. That we would be changing people, and that we'd be people that watch and help each other. Thank you that what you have brought us into is simple and ordinary and so very deep at the same time. Feed us from yourself as we come to your table this morning. Give us life in your name. Show us that it is through often these seemingly small things that you do your important work. So give us faith as we come to your table in Jesus' name. Amen.